Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Antifada, episode 200 and a lot. Uh, we are here with me, Sean, and we're also, of course, here with Andy, who's on tour right now, traveling, but uh, he made it. And we are here with Vincent Bevins, who is not in California, although he is from there. He is in uh, merry old England, in London. Vincent, hello, how are you? We're here to talk about an excellent book that Andy and I both got a chance to read, and actually one that Andy spoke about with Michael Hart recently at the Woodbine space. Uh, it is uh, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and The Missing Revolution by you, Vincent Bevins. Could not be a more timely book, I think, as um, we come out of COVID, as we come out of uh, the inflation crisis, as the sort of illiberal thrust of populist politics continues through the world. Indeed, as protest continues, but as it seems as though this pseudo or it may be even revolutionary decade of uh, 2010 to 2020 has kind of run its course now and people are looking for different answers and maybe even posing dis different questions. What your book does is it uses your vast experience as a journalist, having lived through uh, many revolts in Brazil and elsewhere, but also, of course, interviewing uh, people from 10 different dynamic struggles uh, that popped off in the second decade of the 21st century. So uh, thank the end notes decade. It's funny you say that because after I finished your book and I, you know, I've been working a lot. I just finished it a couple hours ago. I brought up end notes. I, I brought open the, um, the essay, uh, Onward Barbarians, which is their attempt at trying to get an understanding of the way that this sort of 15 year crisis since 2008 has led to various different uprisings, many of them across the globe. Uh, that haven't yet cohered into something, or at least if they have cohered into something, it's something that hasn't left much residue except a sort of, um, I don't know, despair, you could say, or disorganization, or um, uh, a failure of, uh, of will, let's say, or maybe... Uh, I don't know what. What did you? Uh, why did you write this book? Uh, what What was it that inspired you to kind of collect together your experience and our experience of those last of those ten years? Yeah, I was living in Brazil in 2013. the The reason that I got involved, the reason that I I didn't decide to get involved in this topic. This topic really kind of arrived uh, in Sao Paulo, and it was li what I lived through back in June 2013 that led me to, like almost everybody that I know that lived through it struggle to understand how it was possible because there really was a moment when I without with you know without ever having formed these assumptions consciously um being somebody from that grew up I don't know what it is about my particular biography that matters but for whatever reason as an American who grew up in the 90s I always I did have this deep belief that there was if there was a group of people with goals that I thought were worthwhile. In this case, it was a group of leftists and anarchists that had put together a set of protests um, against a bus rise, but ultimately they wanted just uh, all public transportation to be free. I believed that if the people came to the streets behind this demand, if there was kind of a generalized insurrection, if, if, the, if, if the spark could be lit and then the people entered the streets in, in struggle, that this would necessarily, of course, obviously be be pushing forward history, if not like the eschaton, if not actually like providing the break that will bring us to a, a new type of society. Uh, it didn't go this way at all. It was it was a disaster um, from the perspective of the original organizers and certainly the center-left government that was in power. 
And a lot of strange things happened in that month um, that ultimately, I think most people on the left agree, if not directly, somehow opened the doors for a lot of um, right wing forces that ultimately conquered power in, in the country. So I was profoundly preoccupied with that mystery. And uh, w whenever anything else happened around the world that seemed to be kind of similar from 2013 to 2020, I and all my friends would always, you know, get together like, oh, do you see that? Do you, oh, is that going to go the way that things went here? I hope not. Sometimes those things did, sometimes those things didn't. And then also in trying to understand really um, seriously what had gone wrong and, and also particularly the ways in which my class had made mistakes, you know, journalists at the most powerful um unjustly <laughs> at the most powerful outlets in the world, you know, English speaking, corporate media, what we had got wrong about 2013, I started to look back at the uprisings that, at the beginning of the decade in North Africa, because I think that things would not have gone the way they did in Brazil, if we had not interpreted 2013, as if it were somehow the kind of the same deal as what was understood as the Arab Spring in, in um, English language media. So it was something that really like, happened to my my street basically in downtown Sao Paulo and the things got a little bit worse and then they got a lot worse and they got a lot lot worse than anybody could have ever expected and they got worse than that um and that was I think what drove a lot of not only my preoccupation with this topic but like so many Brazilians still sort of struggle to understand how that what actually happened in this, in this decade yeah, can I jump in um I was in uh, Sao Paulo around 2015, I think, and I, I met with one of the people who was part of the the free rides movement when it started off. And his his analysis is pretty much the same as uh, I wish I knew his name. You probably know him, but his analysis was so similar to yours. And we had this conversation that was basically just like, this is a really serious question that we have to figure out because I was part of this sort of adventurist anarchist tendency that we have a concept called the vortex, which is like, you know, what we're trying to do in the streets is open the vortex and see what ha what it looks like on the other side. And um, and I think we had, you know, maybe sort of a juvenile belief that like no matter what happens, as long as we're causing chaos, we're going to get to a place with at least more potential. And yeah, 10 years after seeing what happened in Brazil, where like opening the vortex opens the door to like, right-wing reactionary politics to like seize the Bolsonaro. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's even not even the Arab spring is like a much worse example of that. We're just, it turns into civil war in Syria. We have to take account of it. So the, the book is absolutely asking all the right questions. No, I was going to say we have to uh, take account of it. And we also have to use this, I think all three of us as a self-critical moment. And you're, I think very productively self-critical in this book by examining, I think, you know, this feeling that you had of this, uh, this telos, right? This sort of like, um, the sense that popular insurrection, that popular will can break through and create meaningful reforms, put pressure on center left governments and ultimately create a sustained and sustaining movement of working class people, subaltern people, um, that, that could break through was, I think, the default leftist position going all the way back to probably 1991, certainly the, the, since, uh, 2008 in the Occupy Wall Street movement. And so 
one thing that you do towards the end of the book and then all of the examples through the course of the book that you bring in go to prove this point is talk about this conception of horizontalism and uh, talk about this sort of, I don't know, protestism, this sort of conception that all of us had of this sort of historical tele- teleological process that enough insurrection, enough popping off, enough social media, enough people on the streets is going to break through and create something new. Um, so talk a little bit about where this uh, teleology came from. You know, in some ways, it seems like it's a, it's a, a hangover from the end of the Cold War, from the end of history. Um, and it's this sort of um, ideological framework and practical framework that so many of us were caught in up until I think very recently. Many of us probably still are. Yeah, no, that's there's a lot of really great things there. I wanted to start with that that uh, that image of the the vortex because I kind of believed in this something. I believed in something like this too. And if you, I don't, I'm I'm curious who you spoke to. I probably could guess based on if you told me what the analysis was. I could probably guess who it was. But they believed the 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 free fair movement. They believed that they would be intensely organized and they would come up with a plan to create the popular insurrection and then they would exit the stage because the popular insurrection necessarily for some of the, you know, according to some of the assumptions you just outlined would be good and would push things in, in the right direction. The thing is that the vort, something like a vortex maybe comes, there is a feeling of a vortex. Certainly reality feels like it's shifting. But then on the other side, it is still all the same people in the country that were there two days ago. And this is what is... And this is this is what is horrifying in many cases in the Brazilian context that the people that actually come to the street. Oh, it's not actually the subaltern because we chose as the site of struggle downtown Sao Paulo. And this is where the center right sort of anti-political or even reactionary petty bourgeoisie lives. Like we're in the center of the economic capital, which is why they kind of try to go down to the people afterwards. They're like, oh, oops, we picked the wrong. This is like the people that live here, the people that lived here before the vote text were, were, was opened are not the people in the sort of magical sense or mystical sense or or, or, or just sort of, you know, um, optimistic political sense that we had imagined. It's it's a very particular uh, configuration of people. And, and in North Africa, the vortex kind of opens, but you don't, there's not a different world on the other side. You're still living in an imperialist global system with the U.S. army willing to enforce what it perceives to be its interest. And this is what many people learned quite tragically. Um, right, like you, you can change your world. You can like revolutionize the social relations in like the square that you're occupying but but yeah yes there's and even even outside of like the malign and overweening influence of american capitalist imperial imperialism or you could say the west as we see over and over in your book uh there are local elites some of them not even right wing some of them are center left or whatever themselves who once this vortex or vacuum opens up this vacuum in politics they have the organizational capacity they have the funds and they have the bodies in the street necessary in order to take what is a illegitimate or an illegible as you call it or inchoate revolt and turn that directly in their favor because they have the local forces on the ground yeah this is often what happens this is often happens so to to answer that other question about teleology about um so yeah i'm glad you brought up that new point because teleology combines with illegibility i think um in a way which involves my own class that of the the sort of the the institutions with the biggest microphones in this in the in the, in the u.s-led system um because as you say if these revolts are fundamentally illegible um, which I come to the conclusion that they are, that if that you can look upon, for example, June 2013, just to use that example because we've outlined a little bit, you can look upon June 13 and come up with a lot of different narratives using facts, right? Um, often it 
it falls to people like me, people in the media, to interpret what's happening. And often I, what I find in the, in, in the decade is this interpretation not just changes the way that people around the world understand what's happening on the street. It changes the streets themselves. So like new people go to the streets because of what they saw in media. And that changes the concrete configuration of the actual revolt. And so my class of people was really raised and then trained up in um, the newsrooms of the English-speaking world through the myth of the end of the Cold War, through the myth of the fall of the Berlin Wall. You, like, through a very selective story of how it was that um, Second World Communism fell apart and how it was that people came to the streets in Germany, David Hasselhoff sings a song, happily ever after, right? That somehow it was actually the people that came into the streets that caused the end of the DDR and that also that everything got better, right? So this is a very selective story and misleading as I tried to lay out in the beginning of the book. But then when this happens, when you get other uh, explosions like this, people like me, people, you know, you know CNN shows up in uh, Tahrir Square and because it looks the same, they jump to that conclusion. And there's this deep assumption that is certainly, that was certainly held in the English speaking world after the end of the Cold War that, oh, well, you know, we still are teleological. We still believe in the Talos. Uh, uh, it's just that now the Talos is sort of like American style liberalism. Um, modernization theory um, uh, 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 elaborates this quite explicitly. Modernization theory um, plays a big role in my first book in um, justifying a lot of the U.S.-backed dictatorships in the global south in the 20th century and anti-communist mass murder. But you have this strange elective affinity between certain narratives that are sort of deep in the heart of some people, especially in the media, but also some participants, and the kinds of revolts, the kinds of um, uh, mass protests that become possible or, or easier, perhaps, than other types of responses to injustice um, in the second decade of the 21st century. And yeah, there is often, as I said, I think I kind of had it deep down myself. When, you know, I, I like put this in the mouth of my friend Juliana, who's a Brazilian Jewish leftist was never an anarchist, but she certainly was like understood who the who the anarcho punk scene was. When like the day came, like when it finally happened, when like we took the bridge. I mean, not we because I was I was I was a journalist, but like that we took the bridge. Like the people came out behind this insurrection in defense of decommodification of public goods. She said like she you know the 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 language she reaches for is mystical. It's like a vortex. It's like I'm you know I saw heaven or something like this, right? Uh, and now she looks back on this and says, I can't believe that I, I believe this was a good thing. This was the beginning of disaster. This was the beginning, the beginning of the end. So yeah, those of us that had that, uh, that, that assumption, which I did, and I think the uh, free fair movement had, uh, the, the idea that necessarily quite a lot of people on the streets coming after a set of positive or progressive demands, uh, would be a good thing. Um, that was all. Uh, disproven, and I think what also was which was proven, and this was another tragic thing that I like watched people realize live, mm -hmm. is that people entering the streets um, after you is not the same as entering the streets behind you. Like the new people, the new waves of people were like chronologically next, but they weren't actually in any way united with the original organizers, nor do they even understand them or actually care about understanding them. So yeah, those assumptions, to the extent that um, some of us had them, I think were. Um, uh, came crashing up against reality pretty quickly. One thing that we've uh, seen, and it's pretty easy to, to bracket out 15 years now since the global financial crisis, which 
obviously objectively upends uh, much of the world, world economy, world um, society, uh, but also injects a sort of um, a subjective aspect into global affairs and global politics as people from Occupy Wall Street to Tahrir Square uh, to Gezi Park and all over the place are reacting to like truly unfolding global economic processes and crises. Um, we, we obviously base, we obviously understand that as a base, right? But what accounts for more broadly, uh, what we see now, these protests reflecting, which is a crisis of legitimacy across the entire liberal capitalist world. I mean, it's obviously rooted in 2008, but what is it about liberalism that you've seen and you've talked to people about that has failed and caused these uh, uh, uprisings? Oh, yeah. And I think this is an important part to understand. Uh, uh, this is, a, I think, an essential um, element of prehistory to the types of uprisings we got in the 2010s. Because they are in a strange and like, not paradoxical, but in a strange way, and, and, and in a way which makes things very difficult, they are both against a response to a crisis of representation, but shaped by that crisis of representation. So starting in the end of the second half of the 20th century, you see people starting to believe correctly that the institutions that are supposed to represent them are no longer doing so. The, the institutions that are supposed to be responding to them are no longer really doing so. The institutions that are supposed to um, uh, speak for them no longer do so. They are often... Uh, in dialogue with powerful powerful economic forces um, and elites in a given country, or perhaps you know, depending on how how peripheral you are in the global system, also perhaps in dialogue with you know imperialist forces in in the core of the system. So there is a real, and I think you know, as I quote in the book, it's like by this point, it's like liberal political scientists all kind of agree this is basically real that um, governments do not respond to to people in the way that they. They used to or that they claim to. So you have people believing rightfully that I am no longer being represented here. And this is something against which people react. This, the ways in which not only in 2008, but in many, many other ways, the, the governments of the global system did not respond to the real and urgent needs of the populations. But they also respond. The ways that become available to respond, I think, are also shaped by the crisis of representation, the failures of liberalism, and the types of subjectivity that is shaped by uh, late 20th century uh, neoliberalism. Um, and so this, this creates this very explosive mixture. This creates this very potent recipe, which in the 2010s is far more successful than I think many people expected it to be, far more successful than imagined by those that sort of cooked up the recipe. You don't cook a recipe, you... Uh, you uh, create the recipe, then you cook. Who created the recipe in the, in the first place? And then it does like open this, it like proves powerful enough to open this apparent rupture or a real rupture in many cases. Um, and then the book often ends up, ends up being about well, what happens next? What, what actually happens when this happens in the concrete context of a imperfect, imperialist shaped global system and the real crisis of representation, which is... Uh, uh, generalized, I think, since the, the end of the 20th century. You've got a, um, an economic crisis, and then as you describe it, a uh, political crisis. And uh, your chapter or your, chap your, your portions on uh, Euromaidan, I think, show something really clear, too, which not just in post-Soviet space, and we had uh, Volodymyr Eshenko uh, on okay, okay, uh, yeah. just last week, so we're variations on a theme here. Not just in uh, the former Soviet states of Eastern Europe, um, but really across the capitalist world, you have a um, a disintegration of civil society, 
right? Uh, when we talk about representation, there used to be uh, in the 20th century, certainly in the mid 20th century, organs of representation that were built into the larger political and social structure. Right. I'm thinking specifically of trade unions, right? But uh, even, of course, churches. Um, civic organizations like uh, the Kiwanis Club or whatever it is, a lot of the uh, bowling leagues, a lot of these institutions have right. evaporated. And in Euromaidan, I think you see a really symptomatic process, which is that this is replaced by a sort of privatized NGO civil right. society that doesn't even purport to, well, it purports to serve the interests of the people on the ground, but it, it is certainly an, an exterior, exterior force, right? Yeah. It has a certain... Um, self-interest, let's say, or interest of others in place of a civil society that might be reflective of and generated generated by uh, the working classes of that place. Yeah, I mean, it's it certainly like, I really like, Arund, I mean, I like Arundhati Roy in general, but I really like this Arundhati Roy essay where she says, you know, you, as, for all the good things that NGOs do, um, and it's like, I like quote basically half the thing, but for all the, things, the, the good things that NGOs do, and the people do believe that they're helping, they often are helping, they're not actually responding to the people. They act. They respond to funders. The the people that they're serving don't have the ability to say stop doing this or do this differently. It is the funders of the NGOs that um, uh, actually make the decisions as to whether or not the money keeps coming. And this this fundamentally matters, right? Like money matters. Like funding matters. And absolutely in the second world. And uh, Vladimir Shchenko is really good on this. I really like this point that he's put together. And I think we're both just kind of uh, um, summarizing it. But what you got. In the second world, after the fall of the USR, was not what they were asking for and not what they expected. Um, many of the elites thought that they would be indeed like actually integrated into the the the, the West. They like believed in integration into um, the first world. Uh, turns out that the economy, the global economy, is hierarchically organized, and people at the top don't like to pull up people um, if they don't if they don't have to. Um, and then people in the in the streets. People that did protest at the end of the '80s, although I think that you, they, the, the 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 Soviet Union was in collapse before the protest started, and they could have been crushed if they wanted to, were often asking for a better version of social socialism, a better, a more democratic socialism, rather than generalized anarchy and and social collapse, which is what what, shock, what, what shock treatment, yeah, yeah, which is what actually happened in much of the Second World. So certainly by the the 2010s, almost everyone in Ukraine has a really, really good, uh, good reason to be upset with their elites. Like, the, the, like civil society, the economy, the country has been decimated by the deal that was handed to it after the fall of the Soviet Union. And yeah, as you say, what is left of civil society there is a group of people, and I met a lot of them because a lot of them were the first people on the streets in 2013, believe in what they're doing, um, have views that would be very similar to what a lot of people in New York or, or San Francisco or Berlin would believe. Um, but they are, they do get their money from outside of the country. And this is something that is more true in some places than in other places, uh, in the 2010s, um, that civil society is either non-existent or has been decimated. Certainly in Egypt, like they would have loved to have, um, representational or even sometimes hierarchical organizations with which to carry out a revolution, but they had been decimated under neoliberalism. Um, in Brazil, you kind of, and this is a different this is an interesting contrast is that what the workers party would claim, what Fernando Haddad would say is actually we did have mediating organizations. Actually, we did have the ability to 
to speak with the streets. We built this. It was very difficult. We built it up in the era of neoliberalism. It was, it was incredibly difficult to build up through the end of the dictatorship and into the 2010s. And then we had the importation of tactics that were built in an environment where there was none at all. And he says this causes a short circuit. He says that the, the importation of tactics um, or a particular form of struggle, which is shaped by the real end of mediation, is unleashed in a country where we've actually we actually can do it, and there's this strange no one knows how to talk to each other, and things just explode. And as you say, other cynical actors, people that are organized or are willing to take advantage of the of the of the power vacuum, um, enter onto the scene. There's some really great passages towards uh, the end of your book where uh, you talk about, and I think it's through um, one of the interviews that you have about how the consequences of the particular forms of social struggle that typically rocket from the core into the periphery and back. Uh, for somebody in, say, New York City, where if they go out and they open the vortex and they fail, they end up getting a job at uh, a university somewhere. Whereas in Cairo, you open the vortex and you fail, you end up beaten, you end up tortured, you end up in jail or even worse. And so it's a sort of paradox of globalization, right? Is that in each of these struggles, as they rocket around the globe and as they you know, in profound ways, but also in very simple ways, communicate with one another. Like I remember, right. um, you know, back uh, during the Occupy movement there and then Arab Spring, there was messages being passed back and forth on social media. While these things take on a global valence and while these tactics and strategies become globalized, the consequences are unevenly distributed as well as um, the concept, like the consequences for the actual struggle itself Seven times out of 10, as you describe it, things go the wrong way. So talk a little bit about this interplay between core and periphery. Yeah, no, that's so that is that's like a like a, that is a quote that there's an there's an Egyptian uh, revolutionary that tells me this. And like, you know, I'm not trying to I don't, I don't make the book like really like, you know, uh, 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 intense and sort of scenic. But he is telling me this like in a downtown Cairo cafe where we have to hide what we're talking about, because if police hear you even talking about politics, you immediately get arrested. Um, and. So the, one of the reasons that I construct this as a history, and I think it really is like first and foremost like a global history, um, is that you can see the ways in which one thing happens here and then inspires something else here. And then it is interpreted here as if it is that thing. And that all, ha that all unfolds chronologically and that process is, is, is becomes um, more legible when it is put in the order that it actually happened. Mm. And I think that the... The flow, like the speed with which something in country A can inspire something in country B increases a lot in not only because of social media, just because of media, just the, the, the acceleration of mediatization of life, which started before, you know, Facebook, I think. But certainly social media is a part of this. But a really interesting thing that happens in the 2010s, um, and I think half of this is great, is that people can be can see what's happening somewhere else immediately. And be inspired by it. And there can be a transfer of solidarity. There can be a transfer of energy. There can be a transfer of knowledge. But also what you saw in this decade in, in a strange way was the reproduction of tactics or a particular form. Not only transported from one country uh, where it was developed to a country with entirely different economic and political uh, uh, circumstances. But sometimes even transmitted or tra like, tra like copied and pasted after it had actually failed in the original um, mm -hmm context so in the case of brazil so so powerful were the images of revolt and so powerful was the ideology of sort of leaderless rebellion and appealing to an overcoming power 
that like these things, um, everybody, it seems like across the globe is, is under this delusion that even if it fails one place, it can succeed here. Yeah. And, and, you know, like a lot, you know, if you look back and look at the scenes of Tahrir Square in Egypt in 2011, it is undeniably incredibly powerful and inspiring, right? You can see why mm-hmm. these images in, uh, uh, led to a wave of protest that was somehow inspired by it in 2011. Again, in very, very different circumstances, Occupy Wall Street is Adbusters magazine um, trying to do Tahrir uh, in New York. Um, but then you also, again, like my, my class ends up mattering quite a bit when they, when we interpret things in one place as if they're somewhere else. Um, and so in the case, again, I'm just to go back to Brazilian context, cause this is the one we outlined in the beginning, the, this group in Brazil, um, is formed by the alter globalization movement and indie media, the website, which, which pops up around the Seattle protests in 1999. And they grow up in an era in which the Workers' Party oversees huge increases in the quality of life of many Brazilians. And again, the narrative that will be presented to you by the Workers' Party, especially Fernando Haddad, I mean, I spoke to him, uh, he was the mayor of Sao Paulo at the time, but also uh, he, he wrote about this quite extensively, is that actually in Brazil, we had, there were great and well-developed organizations that were very adept at mediation. So that not only... The landless workers movement, like off topic, but I spent all summer with them. That's what I, my, my next focus is. Um, but uh, uh, the labor movement in, in Brazil uh, and student movements. But then this set of tactics was brought here that was developed in the core of the system where mediation, especially like you couldn't like go like there was if you were protesting the WTO, there was no way that they were going to like listen to you <laughs> directly. Right. Like that, that was the whole point. That was where that, ta- that, that tactics came from. Um, so in his case, he blames the importation of a kind of an anarcho-punk, um, profoundly anti-representation approach to struggle for, for short-courting, short-circuiting the whole thing. He's and and like indeed, this isn't in the book, but like the Landless Workers Movement, the MST, um, uh, very radical group, um, around for forty years. They try to mediate. They they go they go to the the free fair movement and they say oh no we can mediate we'll do it for you we'll negotiate we'll set it up we can do this mediation actually we've done this we've re, we've reconstructed this um, a, a, over 20, 30 years since the fall of the dictatorship um, but they don't do that they they've 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 always they've always planned on avoiding initial attempts at negotiation and betting on general insurrection it just doesn't go uh, the way that they plan for so I think with we have to recognize just like you know tragically. Libyans realize that when you open up a rift or open up a vacuum and hope that the global system will fill it, that might come in the form of NATO bombing your country. That all of this happens in a global system which in which U.S. ideas get the biggest microphone, U.S. media tends to be the most, the loudest interpreters of your uprising. And um, idea, you know, as much as we try... Attempts are often made to make make it make the opposite happen. Ideas do tend to flow from 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 north to south, right? Like in my my particular case, just because I just mentioned the MST, I'm I'm friends with you know I'm quite close with um the their publishing house, right? Like they have a publishing house. Uh, they do really great work. They translate works and they, they commission all kinds of books. But if I wanted to do this type of a book, I needed to get a New York advance. Like I needed a New York publishing contract. I needed a New York agent. Um, the MST's uh, <laughs> the MST's publishing house Espresso Popular, which is really cool. Everyone should check it out. These speak Portuguese at all. Could not 
pay for the type of journalism that I do. So um, uh, the 10, you know, the, the really big voices, the really big microphones given to ideas that were developed in the, uh, the global north, especially as a result of the Internet. Um, I think that ends up being part of the story, certainly according to the interviewees. We're dealing with a decade where it seemed as though revolution was possible. We've outlined already, as you do in your book, um, the way in which people imagine that was possible. But I feel like one thing that's kind of in the background, in the backgrounds of, of everybody's mind at the time and should be in the foreground of our minds now, is a sort of, um, not a capitalist realism, but like a nationalist realism that exists in each of these struggles. While they are global struggles and that they're interacting with one another, the call was to affect, to... Um, to make enough of a ruckus, to cause enough trouble, to pull enough people together that you can petition uh, your national ruling class to make um, political changes to the system in order to bring about security and peace for your for your nation. There's a sort of like a weird way in which it felt it felt like it, we're back in 1848. We're back in a springtime of peoples. There's this enduring sort of conception of the nation and the people. Um, that continues despite globalization to, to kind of um, to limit the imagination of people beyond that. Even when you think you're doing revolution, you're doing revolution in Egypt and you're doing revolution in Tunisia. What do you think uh, w within all your uh, interviews and reading and experiences, uh, what accounts for this endurance of this conception of popular will of the Republican, the Democratic Republican revolution against the elites, um, this sort of Rousseauian conception of the people, as opposed to other ideas of revolution as they existed in the past, like the working class as the agent of history and the international, oh, yeah, so the international ruling class, let's say. Or yeah. So class. like, why does this become the populist decade yeah. uh, rather than, yeah. Um, that is, well, you know, I think, I think, well, uh, it, the question as to why we don't view these as a decade of working class or insurrections or insurrections that are organized uh, by uh, or that are uh, carried out by the organized working class is because they weren't, right. uh, which is because of the decimation <laughs> of often union structures, especially, you know, the United States has got, you know, is, is, is really um, a pronounced case. Um, but often you had uh, the again the concrete decimation of the types of representational structures of the types of collective action, uh, the the organs for collective action that would have seemed natural as the way to respond to injustice in the first half of the 20th century, um, being taken apart by explicit attacks from the top down, taken apart by transformations in the global economy, which just made that kind of organizing more difficult. And then again, when you bring in the the media. Uh, this elective affinity with anything that is um, post-ideological and middle class is really good. That's really good. That's what you really want. Mm -hmm. So I did an uh, I did a an event two weeks ago in Lisbon, which which was quite interesting. Um, book launch at the I went there for the Web Summit, which is like this you know strange uh, conference where like companies are trying to um, like get people to invest in their, 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 their startups. But then I also did a book launch at this, uh, at, a, at a Brazilian shop with a local magazine, really great magazine, uh, 74, uh, but then both of the moderators, both of the interlocutors at the bookshop were like lifelong card carrying members in the Portuguese communist mm -hmm. party, 
which is like not weird at all in the Portuguese context. Yeah, did they like have an electoral breakthrough a year or so ago? The Communist Party. They were part. They were. They made. They were part of the. I don't know how to translate this, but from 2015 and on, the socialists governed with the support of the communists. Uh, so the PCP is an unreconstructed Marxist-Leninist party. Um, they and 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 they uh, that that magazine Setenta Quatro is named after the Carnation Revolution, in which you know. Uh, um, that party played quite a big role. And what, yeah, again, it wasn't weird at all that this was because they never went away. In a lot of parts of the world, that kind of organization never went away. Um, and what one of the interlocutors at the Lisbon book launch said, which was really interesting, reminded me of way, all this, the way that all these things go, is he said, well, in the 2000s, we were doing protests all the time. But we, it was invisible to the media mm-hmm. because the media would be like, well, yeah, that's like a hierarchically organized thing. That's like the, the that's those seven unions that always protest and they're organized by the Communist Party. So they're like they don't count. They, you don't get the positive reproduction loop, uh, the positive uh, reproduction loop between the streets and the media, which is essential, at least in every case that I study for causing the thing to really, really explode, because as I like trace um in like you know, my really really quick history of of contestation and and, and contention and, and, and protests and contentious politics, protest is always interacting with media. It didn't really make sense to do before media. Mm-hmm. And he pointed out like, not only were, was that kind of uh, um, organizing more difficult. I mean, Portugal a, a different a different case in the European context, but certainly he would agree that working class power had been weakened in the second half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. But even when you could do it, it didn't get, like, you were just ignored. The media was like, well, that doesn't count. What really counts, what really will get an immediate reproduction, like, an, uh, 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 will allow for this possible back and forth that leads to the ultimate explosion of millions of people on the streets is when the media thinks that it's middle class and post-ideological. Mm-hmm. Because if it's obviously organized by the Portuguese Communist Party, they're just going to be like, well, we know what that is. That is sort of preordained. It's, it, we know exactly what that, what, what's going to happen. And so, I mean, like Anton Yeager's mm-hmm. book like ends up being in a strange way about what happens after, at least in the European, because my book's not at all about electropolitics and it's not at all about... Um, uh, Western Europe, the United States, but his is about why it is and how it is that populism as an electoral strategy becomes what comes next after 2011. I think it makes a lot of sense um, the way that he lays it out. That it, it is it is what you can try, given the conjuncture. But um, the- yeah, in, in my case, I was I was yeah I liked the way that the the, the the Portuguese communists reminded me of the way that they just got ignored unless they were seen as spontaneous, which I think spontaneity is never really truly a, a real thing. But, um, well, let me ask you this. Um, yeah. In, in that sort of formula, you're drawing a direct connection between middle class post-ideological protests and working class action. But that working class action that you're, you're talking about is, is like organized by traditional parties, very well organized, very orderly, with like a limited time frame, limited goals, and so forth. Effectively, it's just not very interesting. If you have a general strike in France or Greece for a day, it doesn't change anything because it's totally like built into the reproduction of the relate of the relationship between labor and capital. Mm-hmm. So it's not it, in a way it's not covered because maybe there's like a bias against working class activity. In a way, it's not covered because it's not interesting. Whereas Occupy Wall Street, sure, largely middle class, post ideological. That's fair to say it, but they were sort of forming councils all across the country that included workers. Um, so it makes sense that the left sees that and says, "Oh my God." It might be happening. We might be forming workers' councils. And the media says, 
well, we don't understand what's happening here, but it's very interesting. And like, we're kind of forced to cover it because they're creating these events, like 700 people getting arrested on the Brooklyn Bridge, which hadn't happened before. So I I guess like the, the spontaneity has always been the source of whatever the more spectacular political event that happens next is, especially like, you know, we talk about 1917, like Lenin organized the whole thing, but there was a February revolution that was spontaneous. And then there was a Bolshevik seizure, seizure of power afterwards. So I think I don't disagree with, with the, the formula as you lay it out, but I think like um, the event of spontaneous activity from the working class or from the middle class or not is more interesting and more importantly, just more appealing for people to join. Oh, no, I mean, that's that's all. I, I agree with all that, basically. I mean, it's not, I mean, uh, inc- as, not only as, but also as, like, a media professional, the reason that these things were not covered with the same way that sort of Occupy or Maidan would have been covered is because, like, the whole script is already known in advance. Like, it, it, everybody knows how it's going to start, how it's going to end. It's not a story. That's not a story. And also what, what became incredibly interesting about a lot of the things that became the explosions that I read about in the book is that because of the unexpected or unplanned participation of lots of people, it was really unclear how it was going to end. It opened up, and and in certain moments, and I and I do, I think it appeared this this appeared to be true, but I now believe also that it was true, that it opened up many many possibilities for uh, the way that it could end. And that is yes, that is more interesting to media and to participants. I agree. I agree with all that. One thing that's conspicuously absent from your book because it's outside of the remit of your book. It's, of course, the George Floyd uprising, which happens towards the very tail end of the events that you cover. Um, how would you fold that story in? It seems as though these horizontalist tendencies are very much there that you describe. Um, certainly the leaderlessness, although a leadership case attempted to arise uh, and use it opportunistically, but also to, of course, various different sectors of the American ruling class, especially as we saw in the lead up to uh, the election, the NGOs and the Biden campaign and the Democrats in general were able to use this energy to their advantage against Trump. What do, how does BLM, how does the George Floyd uprising and its co-optation and conclusion fit into the larger narrative you made in this book? Well, I mean, the narrow answer to the question is that it comes afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just it's something that happens in the United States after the after the the frame of my book oh, is concluded. You, you, got, uh, <laughs> you, you managed to avoid that. That's good. <laughs> um, so I didn't spend. So yeah, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to answer the question at the same time that I emphasize that I spent like four years uh, concentrating a lot of cases, and none of them were in the United States. Um, so I didn't actually really study it um, closely. I, of course, I paid attention. I was in Brazil. I was texting people. I was watching social media. Um, so part of me is thinks, oh, okay, the real answer is no, investi- no investigation, no right to mm. speak. But in the broadest sense, I can maybe speak of about some things that emerged from the decade of the 2010s that I, whether I liked it or not, used to interpret what was happening in 2020. Um, I remember actually I got a text from somebody. And it was a friend who is a Muslim American New York, longtime opponent of the police. And I got this text at a moment when she was going through kind of what my friend was going through on the bridge. Like, it's happening. It's, it's finally happening. For the first time in my life, I really believe it's, it's happening. And I was like, oh, I hope I'm wrong. Mm. I, hope, I hope that my response here is not mm. right. But what is happening? is happening like what's going to happen next right and i said well in the brazilian context what happens is um if there's no exit strategy if there's no set of demands elaborated 
that can be fulfilled that that that, that can whose concession would allow for the like the end of this particular explosion then what you have what happened at least in the brazilian context is the crowds get smaller and smarter smaller um less and less sympathetic to like the 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 mainstream american television viewer because i mean correct me if i'm wrong you guys probably would have been both closer to this than i was but there was a point at which like a large um, majority of americans supported the 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 protests right there was the incredible poll that came out that something like 65 70% of americans supported the burning down of the police station in minneapolis right, right after which is which which like interestingly enough like is the exact same numbers that like in maidan in 2013 a a minority of ukrainians actually wanted the european association agreement a minority of ukrainians looked back on the final outcome of my, the maidan uprising and said that it was something that they want that they're glad happened but around 70 percent said that they supported the uprising in response to police brutality right. so anyways um what i said in that text text exchange was well if there's not an exit strategy if there's not some there's not some way that demands can be articulated by someone that is credible because you know uh, that the elaboration of a set of demands has to be the people in power have to believe that if they give in those demands that then it then, then it's over Right. Because there's a moment in which because part of the cases in my book are where a government is actually overthrown. And in many of these cases, the protest movement was not ready for this. And they like sort of strangely keep protesting, even though there's no one to protest mm-hmm. to. And then there's other cases where the government's really, really so I, like Gezi is a case where the government like wants to give something to the streets, but they can't figure out what it is. And then the streets can't say what it is either. And so eventually like energy fizzles and then they just clear the streets. So I viewed it, I suppose, in, in, in reference to those two cases, the, the, the Brazilian one, where it just went on longer and longer and longer. And as it went on longer, the media did, like shifted, you know, they, they, you can choose within this type of an, of an uprising to slowly point your camera at the more fringe or the apparently unsympathetic elements of the, of the uprising. And that will, and then of course, ev- like everything in U- US politics gets sucked into this inverse polarization machine where one, one half of the country comes up with one interpretation, the other half of the country comes up with the opposite interpretation. Absolutely. Everyone defines themselves Everyone defines themselves uh, in that manner and the media whips that up. So um, those were the ways in which I saw it. Uh, the, I was hoping that it wouldn't end in a inability to extract concrete material concessions from the U.S. government, but I think that's, I mean, I don't know if you, do, you agree that, that that is how it ended. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, for for the uprising, I mean, I'm glad we're talking about it because we were talking before about Occupy being like middle class and post-ideological. The George Floyd uprising is vast majority of the participants are, you know, I, I don't know if we can quantify it, but it, it appeared from what I saw to be working class people of, with huge participation from the middle class, of course. Uh, and then in terms of not having, in terms of like how demands play out, I think the main demand was sort of like put Derek Chauvin in prison. And then besides that, like, get some sort of revenge or like freedom from the carceral apparatus through burning down a police station or by like just beating the police on the streets and proving that by looting like massive, especially luxury shopping centers. And yeah, just being in the streets and being free for a period of time. There wasn't really a demand on the state aside from like lock up the killer cops, which was given to like Chauvin is in prison now. It didn't work with uh didn't work in other cases. He even got stabbed um, in prison. But yeah, yeah, like in terms of post-ideological, yeah, for sure. There still wasn't 
really an ideological direction to it. And when leftists tried to give it with uh, like abolish the police, that is where you can start having this rhetoric that it was like a failure because that was not a popular slogan. The way that was implemented was obviously bullshit. And then the Democrats can kind of like use that momentum. Uh, but then people look back at it and say like, oh, it was all it was all a ploy for the Democrats to beat right. Trump or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's bullshit. What, what, what's that narrative? I don't, even, I don't know that narrative at all. What's, that, what was the a, narrative that it was a ploy? There's a narrative that, it, that BLM, that the George Floyd uprising was always a completely captured or like confected movement that was run out of the DNC and the NGOs that it was. And this is mostly a right wing conspiracy theory. That it was it was uh, meant to undermine Trump and his president and his uh, re-election bid, essentially. Yeah, these are. I mean, this is a tendency that I try to fight against because, like, again, I, I think you probably both agree that that falls apart empirically for t- in two seconds if you actually look at like if you look at things in order chronologically. Right. There's a tendency, and this happens across the uh, uprisings that I look at, a tendency to impose the final outcome on the thing. On the entire yeah. thing, as if as if that whatever it ends with must have been its preordained and preplanned uh, uh, purpose, right? Whereas, like, if you spend two seconds, like, like looking at, like, yes, the uprisings in Tunisia and then uh, Egypt uh, and then the beginnings of uprising in Libya allowed for NATO to crush a country that they didn't like. That doesn't mean that the Tunisians back in at the end of 2010 were somehow part of a plot to. Right. To, for NATO to crush Gaddafi. It's like the um, 9-11 truth movement, right? Well, they wanted to invade Iraq. And there was some time in between that. And there were like real, um, you know, real events that happened previous to that that weren't just the U.S. government. Well, I often find that uh, that, that kind of a thinking, at least I'm going back to geopolitics and the Arab Spring, that kind of, a, uh, 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 that kind of thinking is ironically a less robust theory of empire than one that understands that uh, like a properly constructed hegemon can respond to events. The idea that everything has to be planned in order to reinforce U.S. power yes. is actually a, a, a weaker critique of imperialism because an, a, a properly constructed empire can like react on the fly to whatever pops off over there, uh, as many people found out tragically. Um, the yeah, so I've uh, yeah, go on. No, I was gonna say I have under on my sheet here where I'm writing notes. I have color revolutions, and I have it underlined because what your book does a great job as. And we're gonna wind down, and we're gonna head to the bonus section in just a little bit. So everybody should subscribe if you want to hear that. But one of these tendencies you get as working class uh, politics has been liquidated over the last thirty years is a leftism that understands the world as a grand conspiracy that sees color revolutions, let's say, themselves, or Tahrir Square, whatever it is, as uh, like mechanisms of an, an elite ruling class that's using finance and military and the CIA in order to do regime change all over the place for their globalist agenda or whatever. That is like a, a pretty standard left position now. Not nearly as interesting as, say, getting down into the nitty-gritty of what happens in Maidan, as you do in your book, and as uh, Volodymyr does really, really well in all of his writings, too, to understand the interplay of class forces, the divisions within the working class, the divisions within the ruling class, the political economy of that revolt, and then, of course, inform that with the geopolitical aspects of it. We can tell a much richer story on the left broadly if we include, let's say, class into the conversation and don't make everything simply a geopolitical or imperial struggle. Right, because there are, of course, international forces that use financing in the military, in the CIA, to um, 
carry out regime change. But that doesn't, but as I, as you said, like the actual story of Maidan, how it starts and how it, how, where it goes and where it ends, um, is richer than just taking the final outcome and reading it back to the beginning, right? Because there are several different moments. And again, everyone kind of does this. Like it's not only the, it's not only the color revolution. I want to use, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to like talk about what that term means because it's, it means two different things and they're both quite interesting and kind mm. of, of, of fuzzy, but it's not only, um, it's not just one side of the, of the narrative on Maidan that does this, right? Like uh, absolutely the liberal, media pretended that Maidan was just one thing. They just like picked, okay, well, it's about wanting to join Europe. Uh, and so that's how it started kind of, even though if you look at the data for one second, most people didn't even want this uh, European association agreement. And they read that as if it's the entire Maidan story. And then you have the opposite narrative, which is like, oh, well, look how it ends. It ends up with the empowerment of some previously marginalized far-right forces. You have the removal of Yanukovych. Um, the U.S. is uh, uh, certainly sees... And a, a geopolitical rival given a black eye. And so that was like what everybody was doing the whole time, which again falls apart empirically if you look at this middle um, group of people that are quite easy to find that say, no, I was actually there because I wanted deoligarchization. I actually went there because of police brutality. I actually left because I was uncomfortable with the way that things were going. I felt betrayed by the whole thing, et cetera. And across... And that's why I do. That's why I decided to construct a history rather than to say, "Here's the here's the protests I like. Here's the ones that are real. Here's the ones that are fake." Right? I just thought it would be more coherent to pick them based on just this one very simple criteria that I use: is that they're not picked on my affinity for the ideological or class component of the of the of the movements. It's just what happens when. Protests get so big that it, it seems that they open the vortex. Uh, what 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 is what happens if you build a global history around protests that get so big that they actually fundamentally destabilize or indeed overthrow governments? And and uh, what steps into the breach, failing a uh, revolution? Yep, and that story I think is too complicated to tell backwards. Uh, you end up with a, in, like an inverse teleology, which some Brazilians have accused. There's like a there's a lot of different there's like so there's so many different narratives about what actually happened in 2013. But one but one but one goes backwards. One says, well, because it did end in the parliamentary coup that removed Dilma Rousseff in 2018 and um, uh, the election of Jair Bolsonaro in 2018, that the whole thing from the beginning was like a Bolsonarista. Well, like well, right. that didn't the, even exist that yet. That the anarcho punks that you knew and were speaking with who were engaged in this were somehow secret agents for a Bolsonaro movement that didn't even exist yet, or maybe the military. I've been asked. I've been, I've been asked by relatively um, sophisticated interlocutors if that were the case. Like, is it possible actually that they were like thrown together? Um, this group, the Movimento Passe Livre, was thrown together um, for some right wing or destabilization or color revolution style purposes. <laughs> it's like, like if you look at it for one second, they did this every year for eight years. They did, the, <laughs> they did, they did it, they did it every time that there was a bus, there was an increase in the price of uh, transportation starting in two thousand five, tracing their their. Um, roots back to this strange um, explosion and in, in apparently spontaneous in Salvador. So again, it falls apart empirically, uh, but also I think it's, again, less you end up with a, a theory of empire, a theory of, that is actually weaker than the one that says that everything must have been planned from the beginning because, you know, strong teams, uh, strong teams play defense. They can, they can intercept passes, not just like, uh, like come up with plays. Look, we defend uh, your friend Vegetable in Sao Paulo, okay? Your friend Vegetable... <laughs> is a comrade and a friend and not a fed, so don't try to fed jacket him, anybody out there. If you do, you're in trouble. 
We they do. I mean, no, th- yeah. this was like a profoundly. I mean, some of them have gone through like some trauma through with it. I mean, they've. I mean, they've all gone through intense trauma. But the like some of them have been like really, really troubled by accusations that they must have been the whole time always somehow. And, so, and the, even when they recognize, oh, actually, like some of them, you know, in various degrees, even when they recognize, oh, the thing that we set off, we could not control it, and it took the country in a bad direction. Even when recognizing all that, um, having real, real problems with some people, like you know, launching the theory that oh, perhaps you know. And again, it, I, I, I say at the end of the book, I think that we're probably going to find out things in five, ten, five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty years that are going to be shocking about major imperialist powers acting behind the scenes in ways that we maybe guessed at um, but could not prove at the time. Yeah. Hopefully, um, we'll yeah, find I, out. I, I ha- yeah. yeah, hopefully we'll happens. be around to find out. We, uh... Oh yeah, hopefully we'll find out. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully they keep doing the thing that they've done. Um, uh, for me, maybe it was only because of the stability of U.S. Empire that they act- they've done the thing you know that allowed my first book to happen to you know fifty forty years later be like oh, yeah you know we're we're so we're so we're so confident in our position that we're we're just gonna we'll let everybody you know figure it out with what's going on. the help of your book. All right. With the help of your book, which is available now, you can pick it up at local bookstores. Uh, If We Burn, uh, which I call a balance sheet for the second decade of the 21st century in my notes as a playoff of endnotes. But if they buy your book, your timely intervention, hopefully within the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, we'll all be picking through the rubble of the National Archives being able to look at the documents <laughs> ourselves and saying, oh, that's how they did it. Uh, oh, but wow, you need I to buy the book it. first yeah. and probably also subscribe to the Antifada, patreon.com slash the Antifada, because we're going to talk more strategy, what comes of this, uh, of all this great uh, research and work and historical synthesis that you've done, how we can use this maybe to not make the same mistakes in the next 10 years. So join us on the other side. Vincent, thank you again so much. We'll put a link to your book in the show description. All right, we'll see you on the other side. I'm going to do it my way. It'll be all right if we burn.